Call for the weeping mothers, the lost fathers, and the forsaken children, and let them come quickly. For a voice of crying is heard out of Zion, for we are greatly confused. For death has come into our ghettos to cut off the young men and women from the streets of Philadelphia, New York, L.A., Georgia, Ohio, Florida, Mississippi, and throughout America, South America, the Caribbean islands, Africa, Asia, and all over the world. So return unto me, thus saith Yah, and I will return unto you, O my people. History and Current Events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people will turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. All that getting, get an understanding. Welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. 
The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage and catch the live stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there also. You can go to abibitumi.com. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com forward slash time for an awakening. They stream from Ghana and catch the live stream there. Or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free app. And that TuneIn search engine, just type in time for an awakening. There you'll see the icon and you can stream the program live even into your car if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, just type in time for an awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. <clears throat> and do me a favor before you leave that page. Just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening Radio Program with the fan page on Facebook. And Time for an Awakening Media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening Media. Interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also, check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace and our partnership with the BB2Me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Uh, various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.07 here in the city of Philadelphia on this uh, Sunday evening, the 7th of May. And our special guest this evening in conversation, author, distinguished journalist, and former field secretary with SNCC from 1962 to 1967, and currently the senior analyst at AllAfrica.com, Professor Charles Cobb Jr. will be joining us this evening. The topic of discussion will center around the book, This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, How Guns Made the Civil Rights Movement Possible, and, and, and also other topics that uh, center around the book and our struggle today. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com.
All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot, Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m., for podcasting or live program scheduling. Hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's uh, 7-12 here on this Sunday edition 
of time for an awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Arch Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Hey, Elliot, I, uh, I was running this through my mind all day, you know, to um, thank um, those, you know, thank Dr. Cobb for producing this book, um, um, this na- historical narrative, you know, take us through that um, so that we can have. And also thank um, 1865 Freeman Drive um, on Clubhouse for bringing us together, Sisanita, bringing us together um, to actually go through this text and also um, Street and Elite, who is also um, broadcasting on Clubhouse. Uh, I, I think uh, doc, Dr. Cobb's um, um, journey and analysis um, helps us in 2023 um, deal with some of the, you know, pressing questions that I, we have and then place, be able to help us place it in historical context. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the dialogue. Richard, this is just a, a continuation of the the things that we try to discuss on this program and a lot of times to reach back on the men and women that have experienced a lot of these things. If we can't get them personally, we'll go to a historical text and just share the, the thoughts and ideas of some of our elders and some of our ancestors that have written. Uh, our guest tonight has been with us before, and it's been some years, but we're glad to have him back, Arthur distinguished journalist, former field secretary with SNCC from 1962 to 67, and now current senior analyst at AllAfrica.com. Professor Charles Cobb, Jr. is with us this evening. Professor Cobb, how are you, sir? I'm fine, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for inviting me again. Glad to have you back on Time for an Awakening with myself and Brother Richard. Yes. Professor Cobb. Listen, before we kind of get started and talk about some things, and, uh, and I'm immediately pass the mic to Brother, to brother Richard, I, I want your thoughts, Professor Cobb, on yourself being directly involved in organizing in our struggle in the early 60s and becoming part of a long line of our ancestors and people that are still here that were directly involved in the struggle from David Walker to Henry Holland Garnett to Frederick Douglass to others <laughs> leading up to you and, and uh, Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael. We're getting a little background interference. I think we're all right now. I think we're all right now. It was a little little interference there. Yeah, Okay. Um, Professor Cobb, really, I, I just want I, I want your so, I want your thoughts uh, b- because in 2023, the struggle t- still continues with basically the same struggles that our ancestors have fought against and that you were a part of fighting against when you were a young mm-hmm. man. Give me your mm-hmm. thoughts on these things before we kind of delve into a lot of the material this evening. Okay, well, firstly, nothing happens quickly. So our struggle in the 1960s was simply a continuation going all the way of struggle that goes all the way back to the days of slavery. If you think about it, uh, uh, Africans who were enslaved, you know, were not having protest marches on auction blocks. 
or they weren't having sit-ins seeking seats at the plantation manor dining room table. What were they doing? They were organizing uh, for freedom and uh, liberation. And they understood then, as we understood hundreds of years later in the 1960s, that nothing that's worth doing is going is going to get done uh, in a hurry. Uh, uh, so that's the first and most important point to understand. We saw our struggle as a continuation of struggles that went all the way back to our ancestors who were captured in Africa and enslaved uh, in the United States. And we saw ourselves as continuing that struggle. And now there were specific triggers for our generation uh, we don't have time to go into all of them, but certainly uh, uh, a very specific trigger, and we sometimes call ourselves this, is Emmett Till's murder. We see our, saw ourselves as the Emmett Till generation uh, and his generation, in which we really made our way to in the pages of Jet Magazine with his body in that double truck photograph in his coffin and his funeral uh, captured our intention and uh, pulled us into struggle for change. He, if I had to point to a single reference point for our generation that engaged in struggle uh, in the 1960s, it was uh, Emmett Till's murder. There are other things which I go into in the book, World War II and what happened with black soldiers fighting in World War II, the 1954 Supreme Court decision, the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott, the struggle for desegregation of Charlene Hunter Galt and others at the University of Alabama. I could go on and on with these kinds of things that triggered uh, struggle. Matt Charles Parker, uh, but it was Till. That was a specific uh, trade that pulled us in, that made us conclude that this just had to stop and we were going to do whatever we could to make it stop. And it's the same thing that pulled Nat Turner into struggle. It's the same thing that pulled Denmark Vesey into struggle and Harriet Tubman and Soldier of the Truth and Frederick Douglass. I mean, this history that we were a part of this very, very long uh, history, and we were very conscious of it. We didn't, we didn't see ourselves as having created struggle in a brand new sense. Uh, um, Professor, Professor Cobb, the, um, you know, over the years we've interviewed several of our ancestors that were directly involved in the struggle. Uh, Ms. Cola Clark, who was uh, Mega mm-hmm. Ever's secretary, uh, Mukasa Dada, who was Willie Rick's uh, organizer. And they mm-hmm. all told myself and Brother Richard that what got them involved is when they seen young black people in the sit-in movement. Now, when you graduated Howard University, what... I didn't graduate from Howard. Oh, I'm sorry. What... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
when you graduated? Because I wound up in Mississippi. Okay. I tell the story in the book, but uh, I, I'm not a Howard University. I did attend Howard okay. for one year, well, uh, you- and then I I left. You, I, and, I, and, and since you mentioned Colia, Colia was one of the people who kidnapped me uh, in Mississippi and got me involved. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, well tell, us, tell us in your opinion, because she told us why she got involved and, you know, the story behind her being with Mega mm-hmm. up until the day he was assassinated. But talk mm-hmm. about your, your, your journey and how you got directly involved in the movement. Well, you see, it was the sit-ins. The sit-ins are critically important because for us, you know, up until the sit-ins, we really if you saw civil rights struggle, the freedom struggle, as something grown-ups did. With the sit-ins, we saw people, uh, when the sit-ins erupted, I was 17 years old. 18 years old, uh, we saw people our own age engage. This is Diane Nash. This is particularly the ones that were filmed that we could see on television or see in the newspapers, like Nashville, like Atlanta, uh, and other cities. Uh, we saw people our own age uh, engaged in struggle. And when I enrolled at Howard, in 1961, I immediately became involved in the sit-ins. Because I was involved in the sit-ins, CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, uh, gave me money for a bus ticket to, to, to attend a, a, a workshop and conference for young activists in um, Houston, Texas. Okay. I buy this bus ticket, and I decide it's a way to see the South. And I and I, I buy this ticket from Washington D.C. to Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, and on into Houston. And I got off the bus in Jackson, Mississippi, because the students there were sitting in. And I felt it was one thing for me to be sitting in in Maryland and Virginia as a Howard University student. It was something qualitatively different for students in Mississippi, the place where Emmett Till was murdered, to be sitting in. And I wanted to meet these students. Uh, uh, And I made my way to their headquarters. Coley was there. He's one of the first people I met in Mississippi. Uh, and others, Dory Ladner, Lawrence Giad, who had become, who had later become, the, who was then a Tougaloo student, who had later become head of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and others. And when I told them I was on the way to Texas for a workshop uh, in, on civil rights, Giad, who was a big guy, he was six feet heavy, big, got up and leaned over me and looked at me with complete disdain. (laughs) And he said, and I remember the words exactly, even now, he said, you're going to Texas for a workshop on civil rights? What's the point of doing that when you're standing right here in Mississippi? And then another one of these students, Jesse Harris, who had also been a freedom rider, uh, then chimes in. He says, yeah, man, you're in the war zone here. <laughs> and it's a challenge. I get it. It's a challenge. They say, yeah, you can go somewhere and chatter about civil rights if you want. But if you want to do something, 
then stay here with us. And, and, and we're getting ready to do stuff. They were getting ready to start a project in the Mississippi Delta, voter registration project. And these were six students. And they were getting ready to start a, a project in the Mississippi Delta. Giat was getting ready to go up there, Jesse Harris. So I decide, I say, well, it's summertime. I don't have to be in school. Uh, I don't have to go to a conference. I'll hang out with these people. And I went up to the Delta with them, Sunflower County, uh, with Charles McLaurin and Lanny McNair, and joined their effort at trying to get people to register to vote in the Mississippi Delta, a region of Mississippi that was 80% black and had a handful of black people registered to vote. And... uh, I wound up accompanying Fanny Lou Hamer when she tried to register to vote and a whole bunch of other people. Well, when the summer ended, you know, I had been involved now all summer with these people, and I, I felt I couldn't just say, well, folks, it's been interesting. I'm going to go register for classes now. And I stayed, and I wound up staying almost five years uh, in Mississippi, working, you know, largely in the Mississippi Delta. So that's the path that I traveled that got me more deeply involved than just some sympathetic reader of newspaper stories about civil rights and the freedom struggle. I was captured very specifically by the I tell them to this day when I, when I go to Mississippi off and on, uh, and, and when I see folks, you know, that I was with back in the 60s, I say, you know, y'all kidnapped me. <laughs> and <laughs> you didn't let me go for five years. And they laugh and we laugh and <laughs> and reminisce about those days. And, and But anyway, that's the path I travel that connects the sit-ins, which Colia was involved in, uh, with my own involvement uh, what, what's important, the two things that are important to understand about this. One, it was young people that attracted other young people into the movement. And two, as important as the challenges to white supremacy and racism and the like were to black struggle, more important were the challenges that black people made to one another within the black community. That's what Giat did. He challenged me. It's what Jesse Harris did and Colia and all of those those students in that room when I first arrived in the city. That's what they were doing. They were challenging me. You can go talk or you can do something. And that's the story of the movement. Uh, that's if you traveled with Mrs. Hamer. Uh, and, and you saw how how she talked to people and worked with people. Uh, she's saying, look at me. I'm a sharecropper with a third grade education. And if I can do this, and she said, she would say, I've been a sharecropper all my life. And if I can do this, you got no excuse for not joining this movement yourself. And that's more or less what Gihad was doing. Richard? You know, uh, Dr. Cobbs, and, and thank you for, I'm going to call it uh, heroic uh, kidnapping, right? 
in the sense of being able to recognize someone who has the ability to help in the movement forward. And 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 I want to um, get your reflection based, you know, based off us going through the book and looking at now, and and since you are are with us now. Um, one of the questions that came to my mind, and you, you said, and it touches to something that you were just talking about, that the Southern Freedom Movement is rooted in community organizing. Yes. What do you mean by that? I mean just that, that the if you look at the Southern Movement, the way, if you ask, the, the general public sees the movement as a movement of mass protests in public spaces led by charismatic leaders. And I suppose Reverend King Martin Luther King is a good symbol of that. And while I don't disparage that, but if you really look at the movement, it's the people and strength of ordinary people that you found in ordinary communities, largely rural communities, that really drove the movement. And the tradition of that movement is an organizing tradition. They were not interested in sit-ins. I mean, they liked them. Amzie Moore, who, who, who was a local leader in Cleveland, Mississippi, head of the local NACP, was the one person responsible, if I had to put my finger on one person, was the one person for SNCC becoming involved in Mississippi. He went to SNCC's second conference and urged SNCC to think about organizing for voter registration and to think about organizing in Mississippi. And Amzie had a notion of black power. That's what he wanted. And this is long before Stokely. Uh, and, he, and he was the one who pulled SNCC into uh, Mississippi. The other person, of course, is Ella Baker, who, whose experience you know, goes all the way back to the 30s and 40s. And what they knew was that if you began to work in Mississippi in these communities, you would find deep wells of strength that could be drawn upon. And that's what put the movement together in the South, these deep wells of strength in these largely rural communities where people put their lives and their livelihoods at risk, and they took in us. As young people, I was 19 years old when I went to Mississippi uh, and fed us, kept us alive, and taught us how to move uh, in these communities. And we ourselves were, are learning. We're listening to people. One of the things Miss Baker used to always tell us was you need to listen to people, to what they're saying, hear what they're saying. Uh, and I remember I asked Mrs. Hamer once, years ago, well before she passed, and uh, I said, what was it, Mrs. Hamer, that, that, that attracted you to us? And she said, because at your meetings, at some point you always turn to me and, say, and ask me, what do you think, Mrs. Hamer? Nobody ever asked me what I thought. And if you want to look at these kinds of relationships, that's what the Southern Freedom Movement was really about. That's what powered everything. We simply would not have been able to function in any meaningful way without 
making our way to people uh, and letting people know you need to organize. And if you organize, we will help you. We're not interested in, when we weren't interested in building SNCC chapters, we were interested in encouraging people to organize around whatever it was that they thought they needed. And, and so if you look at the history, you know, there was a Mississippi Freedom Labor Union. There was a Poor People's Corporation. There's the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. There was a co-op of quilters. Uh, there, was, there, was, there were a range of things. We felt that uh, in encouraging people to organize, you were, you were really encouraging people to recognize their own strength. And once they recognize their own strength, they would engage in struggle for freedom. Yeah. And that, that point of recognizing your own strength, and, and this may be, and I said I wasn't going to say it this way, but this may be an unfair question, but you, you have the, you know, you have the, the ability to center um, the experience you went through, the organizing that went through, you went through, and, and see things as they evolve from the civil rights movement to the freedom movement. Um, I wanted to get your reflection. Do you uh, see in the present the, the context of reparation movement in the same context of the freedom movement, a continuation as of right now? Yes. Yes and no. You know, I, spend, I live in Florida, uh, which is leading the way in movement toward fascism. Uh, I spend a lot of time in conversation with the Dream Defenders, a group of young activists that initially came off the campus of FAMU, Florida A&M University, uh, uh, when Trayvon Martin was murdered and uh, uh, George Zimmerman, who murdered him, was acquitted of, of the murder. And they are struggling now as our activist groups all across the country like Black Lives Matter or BYP 100, uh, Freedom Sides and the like to make their way to organizing. I think, and I tell them all the time, it's more difficult today than it was for us. It's one thing, I can tell you anything you want to know about organizing in the rural Black Belt South. To me, it's another thing entirely if you ask me to tell you about organizing on the west side of Chicago or south-central Los Angeles or, or any of these big, urban, far more complex communities than, um, than um, the rural Black Belt South was. There is also, and this is, there's a great irony in this, because of the kinds of victories that were won by the Southern Freedom Movement, uh, black people occupy far more establishment positions than they did back in my day in the, in the 1960s. So in a sense, you also have a struggle with, with, with a kind of black establishment <laughs> that has a vested interest 
in the status quo. Even though I remember when they were celebrating uh, 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 the, I, I guess it was the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, they would not let a, a young activists on stage to speak. Didn't want to hear what these young people who were 21 and 22 and 23 had to say. So you're up against a, 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 an establishment within the black community that we never had to face because it didn't exist hmm. because of segregation and discrimination. And that makes their task, if they want to organize as a group like the Dream Defenders does, much, much more difficult with respect to the black community than what we had to face. You know, um, <laughs> Richard, okay. Richard, Richard I, I continue your thought, but that's, that's heavy, Richard. We got to come back to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think I think this, um, especially this here, because uh, um, you you mentioned um, at a certain point in the text, and again, um, for those who um, went through it with me, I'm 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 pulling out, um, you know, the parts that that struck me. And again, I mean, you wrote, I mean, this should be a movie, right? I don't know if uh, uh, I was on the prize. You know, I understand all that, but to, for what you were, and because you even said in the text, it's like. The people themselves, and, and you mentioned about um, how they felt when these young people came in, in the example mm-hmm. of Ida, um, you know, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. But mm-hmm. then, you, know, you mentioned this class tension. I kind of picked up uh, a, a question out of was it, you know, and I'm thinking of Robert Williams and Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. you know, and I wanted to, if you don't mind, to kind of um, expound on that political and class tension in relationship to his organizing. It sure, but if you look at, at Robert Williams, his tension was not so much with Martin Luther King, because Martin Luther King understood self-defense. Uh, when, when they blew up his house in, uh, in Montgomery, Alabama in 1956, Martin Luther King and Ralph Abernathy went to the sheriff's office and applied for a concealed gun permit. <laughs> And they were rejected, but Martin King understood he's a Southern man. <laughs> when, when Bill Worthy uh, went to his house to interview him uh, with Bayard Rustin, uh, Bill was a, he was a journalist uh, 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 and was getting ready to sit down in a chair. Bayard yelled out, Bill, wait a minute, there's a couple of guns and pistols on that chair. Don't sit down, you might shoot yourself. And when they asked Martin King about the pistols, he said they're just for self-defense. Uh, Robert Williams' tension was with the NAACP establishment in New York. Mm. Roy Wilkins, <laughs> Gloucester Current, those people. And it's ironic because that was the same tension that Megger Evers in Mississippi had with New York. Uh, there were two NACPs, really. There's the New York establishment, and then there's the southern local branches of the NACP, and they were different in many respects. And uh, Robert Williams' issue, uh, 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 um, Thurgood Marshall at one point suggested that to, to Wilkins that maybe they ought to ask the FBI 
to investigate Robert Williams for communist sympathies. <laughs> uh, that's where the tension was. And that sort of tension exists today, except it's much, much larger, mm. much, much more powerful than... I remember um, um, uh, uh, Adam Clayton Powell. Was, uh, this was during the 1954 challenge of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And Adam Clayton Powell, this is in Atlantic City, the, the Democrats had offered this kind of bogus compromise, uh, and which was rejected by the Mississippi Freedom uh, Democratic Party. And, and Adam Clayton Powell was very upset because he thought they, they should have accepted this compromise. And he walked up to Mrs. Hamer and started to criticize her for uh, her leadership in the rejection of this compromise. And Mrs. Hamer listened very patiently. And when he finished, Mrs. Hamer, I know she looked at Adam Clayton Powell because <laughs> he ended his remarks by saying, do you know who you, do you know who I am? And, and Mrs. Hamer looked at Adam Clayton Powell and said, I know who you are. You're Adam Clayton Powell, the congressman from New York. And then she went on and she asked him, what I want to know is how many bales of cotton have you picked? <laughs> and she shut him down. Uh, these tensions have always existed in very, to varying degrees within the black uh, uh, community, and they certainly existed. There were objections in Alabama from the black establishment when the people in Lowndes County formed the Black Panther Party back in 1965. Uh, so they've always existed, and they exist, and they accompany, actually, and this is the great irony, they accompany the expansion of opportunity for black people. You know, you have a black woman as a vice president. You know, you have all these people like Oprah Winfrey and 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 the like. And there's been a tremendous expansion of, of uh, black opportunity. So you 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 see this. There's been a tremendous growth in the black middle class, while at the same time, the black poor have been getting poorer. And this is a problem this generation of activists is going to have to deal with in a way that we did not have to deal with hmm. in the 1960s. And it's a struggle. They're trying to think this through now. I have conversations with them about this, but it's, it's a struggle in, in, in uh, Florida where I live, uh, uh, the Dream Defenders, an activist group, as I said, that, that emerged after the acquittal of George uh, Zimmerman for the murder of uh, Trayvon Martin, uh, they just had a sit-in uh, in the governor's office last weekend um, in Tallahassee, uh, Florida. Uh, and 
they're trying to figure out where do we go beyond protest? And that's hard. I don't envy them that. I, I can always opt out. I'd say, well, I'm old, folks. <laughs> and, and, but I, I try, we, try, we have a whole veterans group of SNCC people organized as the SNCC Legacy Project. And we're very conscious of this, and we try and interact with young activists all the time, inviting them to our meetings and helping them set up conversations with themselves among themselves, uh, but it's a hard struggle. It's, it's at least as hard as the struggle was to batter down the walls of, of segregation. Professor Cobb, the, uh, Richard, will you, well, I'll come back. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll, I'll come back, Richard. Uh, Professor Cobb, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, Amzie Moore mm-hmm. uh, came to Jackson and mentioned that voting should be the focus of uh, organizing people around voting. You yeah, also, that's what Amzie thought. And yeah, you, and you also mentioned that Ella Baker kind of facilitated the way where you could go to these rural counties because it was diamonds in those rural counties, so to speak. It was mm-hmm. that's where the people were. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you: What was the strategy? You being nineteen at the time, and I'm quite sure it was a bunch of others that was young, like yourself. What was the strategy going into these southern? rural areas that was very dangerous. Yeah. Talk, talk about the strategy there. Was it a strategy? Did somebody else yeah. handle uh, uh, maybe the protection of the... Go ahead. You, you tell us. No. No. Uh, one, uh, you know, we picked the regions where you had a large number of blacks, like the Mississippi Delta, which was 80% black. And a uh, a low to no number of blacks registered to vote. Those got priority in our thinking. Uh, Two, we thought you had to dig into these communities um, and get footholds in these communities and make your way to the strong people. Now, these communities varied. Some communities had NACP chapter. Ella Baker was the director of branches for the NAACP in the 1940s. Uh, so if you worked in the, in, the, in the Black Belt South or wanted to work in the Black Belt South, credentials given to you by Ella Baker were extremely important. If you went into a community and said, I'm one of Ella Baker's people, that's golden. Okay. Uh, and often it was Miss Baker who who she had the name. She knew the name. She knew the people. She had developed all these branches. Some of these branches were like underground. People, were, I remember in in a little town, Drew Drew Mississippi. Some <laughs> this old man walked up to me. He knew he knew I was what they called a freedom rider or a nonviolent, and he he reached into his sock. He pulled out this card and it was an NAACP membership card. And he kind of whispered at me, I'm a member of the NAACP and stuck it back. It's like it was an underground organization. And Miss Baker could steer you to the people you needed to meet or talk to in many of these communities. So that was part of our organizing strategy. We took it that Miss Baker was the one who equipped us 
with names. Uh, uh, and it was Miss Baker because Miss Baker was 57 years old when she met us. Uh, and she equipped us with the names and she encouraged us, organized from the bottom up, from the inside out, you know. And, and we learned from Ella Baker, really, the importance of organizing at the grassroots. So key to our strategy in these communities was to gain a foothold that enabled us to organize from the grassroots. And we discovered two things. One, there were existing, there were existing leaders who were known in the community uh, who in many instances would work with you, like Amzie Moore in, in, in Cleveland, Mississippi, or Henry. So a lot of these names history has bypassed. Uh, if I ticked off the names of real leaders in local communities, I mean, Henry Sias in Issaquina County, you know, uh, Amzie Moore in Cleveland, uh, Mississippi, E.W. Steptoe, uh, and I'm taking off Mississippi names because that's where I work. And the same thing could be done in Alabama or Georgia and other places where SNCC worked. So there were existing leaders, and everybody knew who these existing leaders were. And then there were leaders that emerged, like Mrs. Hamer, because of the work you were doing. They, they really weren't known. I remember when Mrs. Hamer, for instance, emerged in the community. We were bringing the first group of people to register to vote in Sunflower County to the county courthouse in Indianola, Mississippi. Now, Indianola was the birthplace of the White Citizens Council in one of the most violent counties in Mississippi. So everybody on the bus was scared. Cause it was 18 people on that bus. We had rented a cot, a bus that was used to carry cotton pickers to the fields. And we, as the organizers, had nothing to offer the people. We couldn't tell the people on that bus, we can provide you protection, or we can get the federal government to step in with anything. And we had nothing really meaningful to offer the people who were frightened on this bus. And then from the back of the bus, this lady began singing. And she was singing a mix of church songs and freedom songs from the movement. And it was Mrs. Hamer. And through the sheer power of her voice, she shored up all the people on that bus just through her voice. And we, it was the first, we looked at it, we said, well, who is that? And somebody said, it's Betty Lou Hamer. No, there was no reason she would be identified as a leader. She had, she was a sharecropper, picked cotton. She and her husband, Pam. And, and, and lived a relatively quiet life. Yet here she was. Her song pushed her forward. As a leader, when she got back to the plantation, the word had already gotten back to the plantation that she had tried to register to vote, and the owner of the plantation was there and told her to pull her registration or else get off his plantation. And uh, Mr. Milam was his name. And Mrs. Hamer looked at him and said, 
I didn't go down there to register for you. I went down there to register for myself. Hmm. That kind of strength emerges from the organized. And and that's what you find when you dig into these communities. There are these people you don't know, and they will emerge and help you. And they do lots of different things. Some don't want to be very visible, so all they can do is feed you, just tell you to come by the house for dinner. And, and so they do a range of things, but that's where the strength of the movement is found in these. That's what kept us going. That's what kept us alive. And and, and in the book, I, I describe uh, what the balance is between uh, us, even though we weren't nonviolent in any meaningful way. We were the student nonviolent coordinating committee, but we weren't walking around with pistols. And in communities where almost everybody was armed, people would be cleaning their rifles, talking about being part of the nonviolent movement. And, you know, I discussed that dynamic in the book. Because in the book, I, I really want to stress, I mean, it's a book about the rural Black Belt South. So it leaves out Chicago and Los Angeles and New York and Philadelphia and all these other places where today a lot of movement struggle is is centered. And 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 when in my conversations with young activists, I try to help them understand what's relevant in my book and what's not relevant. Because you know, I'm talking about the sixties. And this is 2023. So what do I need to know from your experience, Charlie, is relevant today to what I or we are trying to do as Black Lives Matter or BYP 100 or Dream Defenders, Freedom Side, and Asada's Daughters and, and all of that. We spend a lot of time talking with young people about that. Professor Cobb, before we go to a break, and I, I know Richard got some more things he wanted to put on the table, let, let me ask you a question because you talked before when you were on our program. I remember you mentioning that uh, E.D. Nixon had accused... Mm-hmm, in Montgomery. Yes, had accused black ministers of not getting involved. Cowardice. Exactly, and called them cowards. Um, yeah. T- talk about, in, fa- in fact, you mentioned that Dr. King stood up and said, I'm not a coward. See, that's how Martin Luther King emerges as as leader of of the Montgomery uh, uh, Improvement Association during the bus boy. As they, the bus boycott in Montgomery was supposed to be for one day. Uh, and it was very, very successful. So they met that night at Martin Luther King's church. Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. He was a new young minister in town. And to discuss continuing uh, the boycott. And a lot of these preachers were really not enthusiastic about this. And they were coming up with one excuse after the other about, well, maybe we ought to form a committee and go down and meet with the bus people and this and that and the other thing. So finally, E.D. Nixon, who was the real leader 
of Montgomery, one of A. Philip Randolph's people in the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porter stood up. And this story came to me from Johnny Carr. He was 95 years old when she was telling me this and who was really one of Rosa Parks's people because she and Rosa Parks and other women had been fighting against the rape of black women since the 1940s by white men. Uh, but Miss Carr, who was 95 when I met her, uh, I, I asked her the natural reporter's question, you know, uh, so what did he say? <laughs> she said, and I'm quoting her, she said, E.D. said, you preachers been eating these women's fried chicken long enough. Now it's time to get up off your behind and do something for them. Because it's the women who are on the bus going from one side of town to the other. You know, they're the maids and the cooks and the babysitters and all of that. And uh, they're the ones who are facing the brunt of insult and discrimination uh, traveling on the buses. And he goes on, according to Miss Carr, uh, uh, you know, to really kind of denounce the women, the preacher, these people in the audience of being cowards and whatnot. And that's when Martin Luther King, who was then 26 years old, and hardly anybody ever thinks of Martin Luther King as a 26-year-old guy. Uh, Martin Luther King stands up and says, I am not a coward. And everybody is embarrassed, so they meet. They have a second meeting scheduled for um, Ralph Abernathy's church, which is not very far from Martin Luther King's church. And that's where the Montgomery Improvement Association was actually formed. And Martin Luther King this 26-year-old guy who's from Atlanta, Georgia, who is brand new to Montgomery, is elected head of this newly formed organization, the Montgomery Improvement Association, and that's his first step in the national and local prominence as a civil rights leader. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, uh, we'll take some calls. 215-219-0932. That's 215-490-9832. Questions and comments for our guest, author, distinguished journalist, former field secretary with SNCC from 1962 to 67, and the current senior analyst at AllAfrica.com, Professor Charles Cobb. Junior is with us. Again, you can join the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard 
on time for an awakening media part of the black talk radio network for podcasting or live program scheduling hit them up at time for an awakening at gmail.com All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. I transformed a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one of the tangible transformations I've created for entrepreneurs in various industries around the country. If this isn't what you think of when you think of accounting and business consulting, then get ready to take down this invaluable information. Are you an entrepreneur suffering with a stagnating company? Have headache customers, staff, or vendors? Are you rebounding from a loss and need help achieving your unrealized potential? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? Hi, my name is Nataki Kanban. If you're ready to go beyond advising and coaching and get results, then call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions recommend and implement the best comprehensive sales, administrative human resources, accounting, and operations to help you grow into your vision for yourself and your company. Again, from anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072 or pull us up on your device right now and book your free consultation at www.newbusinesssolutions.com. And just mention you heard this special announcement on Time for an Awakening. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. For 12 years, I and others like me had held out radiant promises of progress. I had preached to them about my dream. I had lectured to them about the not-too-distant day when they would have freedom all here now. I had urged them to have faith in America and in white society. Their hopes had soared. They were now booing me because they felt that we were unable to deliver on our promises. They were booing because we had urged them to have faith in people who had too often proved to be unfaithful. They were now hostile because they were watching the dream that they had so readily accepted turn into a frustrating nightmare. And so the collision course is set. The desegregation decisions and other type of legislation and Supreme Court decisions depends upon changing the white man's mind. 
The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches uh, us that our own mind has to be changed. We have to change our uh, mind about ourselves. In what way? Well, so he uh, teaches us the importance of moral reformation, uh, a knowledge of self. And, uh, for instance, if the average so-called Negro, he doesn't think that he can uh, go into business and provide jobs for himself. And because of this, he thinks that he can only get a job from the white man, or he can only get clothes from the white man, or he can only get food from the white man. And we who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad are taught that uh, the same thing that the white man has done for himself and his kind, uh, if our people could uh, be uh, wrecked, if, they could, if we could be cured of our slave mentality that was uh, indoctrinated into us during slavery, we would realize that just as the white man can do these things for himself and his kind, we can get together in unity and harmony and do the same thing for ourselves and our kind. not wondering at all about them. What I'm concerned with the suffering and the pain of the masses of black people. No one wants to pay reparations. The Jews received over a hundred billion dollars in reparations and gets four billion annually. A Holocaust museum was set up for them on this soil for over two hundred million dollars and they get two twenty-one million annually just for operating expenses. But the Catholic Church, the Pope, the Jews, the Arabs, white people in general, no one wants to pay reparations to these, the sons and daughters of Africa. So I speak to them. I don't speak. I speak to them. I don't speak to the family of those two Jews. There are too, too many of us for me to speak to them. And one of the reasons why I'm always happy to come to this organization, because you're the only one, you're the only black organization, again, that understands to put race first. Race first. Race first. And I've had some white folks to tell me that I was a flaming militant, a radical, or whatever all of these names were that they called me. And I said that I am very pleased that you've called me a nationalist, because you could have said that I was a member of the NAACP of the Urban League. So I said, I'm very pleased of the names that you have given. But I said that because we put race first, something is wrong with us. But everybody else puts their own first because God blessed the child who has his own. And so I think that race first is very important. And though we meet in a different venue, we're not at the slave theater, we're not at the church, we're now at the Masonic Temple, it really does not matter where we are physically. It matters where we are in our minds. And wherever we meet, as long as we know that we're Africans and as long as we know that we're black people living here in America, we know exactly who we are. You notice you can put an Uncle Tom in any venue in the White House. You can even put him in his. He'll still be a Tom. You can put him anywhere you want. Well, it's the same thing with us who are strong people. Wherever we are, we're going to be the people that we need to be. encourage let me just say this before our time winds up and that is I want the people in the audience to go back and look at 
the video clip from Roots. It's entitled something like Breaking Kunta Kente. That scene opens with Lauren Green uh, sitting in, who's the plantation master, sitting in his office and then Fiddler comes in and says, um, uh, we don't want to be too hard on the runaway. Kunta Kente has just run away and been caught. And um, so the time comes for him to get his lashing. And if you look at this scene, it's about nine minutes. And study the scene. Study the role of everybody or bodies that are in this particular clip. And you will find that there is an equivalent role in the political life of our country today, whether it's on the national level or on the local level. There's the black man, who actually does the whipping of Kunta Kinte. There's the white man who does the whipping. There's the black man who intervenes with the boss man and tries to save the life of Kunta Kinte. There's Kunta himself, who eventually is forced to admit that his name is Toby. And there's, a, there's dozens of bystanders, black, who are watching. This, this is a very powerful thing. And it's an analogy of exactly what is happening in our community today. Let's give those characters names in our community and call them what they are and then take care of business about that. back to Time for an Awakening. It's 8-11 on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guests this evening, author, distinguished journalist, and former field secretary with SNCC from 1962 to 67, and the current senior analyst at AllAfrica.com, Professor Charles Cobb Jr. is with us in discussion this evening. The book, This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed, How Guns Made the Civil Rights Movement Possible. And you can join this conversation with a question or comment by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Uh, Richard? Uh, Dr. Cobb, are you there? Uh, yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, what, I, what I wanted to, because you had mentioned, uh, it's as you said, there's so many men that are in, in the South, or and I think that that's an important point you make, so many natural leaders and I think that that's a principle we should understand from an organizing perspective. 
though we may be um, um, come into a place with the intent to organize, we should um, look out for those natural leaders. I just and wanted- I want to say, if I can interrupt you here, um, of these natural leaders mm. were women. Oh, I don't think there would have been. Uh, a freedom movement, certainly not a freedom movement as effective as the one that was existed in the 1960s without the leadership of women. And I stress leadership as opposed to women playing a role. Mm. So I just want to inject that in your comment. I want to follow follow up on your your experience on that as far as um, why is that so? I'm not sure. I think about it a lot. Hmm. I think, one, women had a lot more latitude of movement in the Southern societies Okay. Uh, for lots of reasons. They, you know, it's almost a book to do that. Uh, but they were the ones who took care of the babies and all of that. Uh, I think uh, women um, felt less intimidated by the power, uh, by white power, let me put it that way. Uh, I think uh, I think women look to the future in a way that men didn't, and I get a lot of criticism for that comment. Uh, we debate it uh, ourselves. So I'm not sure. I'm thinking about it. Mm. Maybe it's another book. Yeah, and we ho- and we hope that. That comes out because women aren't as black women aren't as celebrated, especially from a leadership perspective. Yeah, um, but I'd, I'd be uh, certainly the Mississippi movement. If you look at the Mississippi movement, the one I know the best, it's the women of it's the leadership of women that made the critical difference, and that's not just Fannie Lou Hamer. You know, it's it's a whole lot of people that the historiography. I'm thinking of Janie Brewer, a woman in Tallahassee County where Emmett Till was killed, making Molotov cocktails in her kitchen sink after she sent her sons and grandsons into the field to fend off the white people who are about to attack her farm. I, I think there's this, these incredible women that, of, of all the things that stands out in my mind in Mississippi, and these are women the ages of my mother and grandmother. And, and, and you make me feel a little, uh, Elliot, he's making me a little, feel a little bad because he had mentioned uh, Mr. Steptoe earlier and, yeah. and his role. And I wanted to just pull out this paragraph uh, because it's Mr. Septo, um, a Reverend T.W. Rogers, Joseph, um, I, I think it's Malashaw, you know, in Tuscaloosa. In, in Alabama. Right, right. These, yeah. The organ, I'm looking at, you know, um, I think that what you raised as far as from organizing um, then, that it's important to bring up, but I, I just wanted to bring this character or this, what you wrote as far as Steptoe was a small, wiry man of renowned toughness, intelligence, and determination. As founder of the president, Amit County, County is what it's called. Amit County and NAACP in 1953, he was also in the crosshairs of local white supremacists. In 1954, Amit County Sheriff Ira Jenkins and 15 or 20 other deputies clans raided an NAACP meeting on Steptoe's farm. 
confiscating the membership list and other records. Not surprisingly, NAACP members dropped sharply, but Steptoe kept the branch alive by buying enough membership himself to meet the quota that the NAAC national headquarters required for a charter branch. The, 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 what struck me when, I, when we were reading that is the tenacity of this individual who recognized, and I think you mentioned you spoke to it. Um, but could you a- answer this? Why was Jonesboro, uh, this small North Louisiana town, uh, uh, so important in relationship to armed resistance? It's where the Deacons for Defense and Justice were founded. Jonesboro was a paper mill town, really. I mean, it was two th- One, uh, because the land really wasn't that great for farming uh, and therefore easily purchasable. Uh, black people moved after the Civil War, migrated there after the Civil War because they could get land cheap and whatnot. So you had a substantial black community in Jonesboro. This is North Louisiana. And North Louisiana is just like Mississippi. If you put a circle around North Louisiana and Mississippi, it would all be the same place. Um, and uh, so you had a substantial black population, and you also – they uh, well, worked in, in uh, paper uh, processing uh, places and a little bit of union activity. So the, and the NACP had been active there. And CORE had just settled on Jonesboro as a place to begin their voter registration project in Louisiana. And, of course, that was met with Klan reaction. But but the, the men in Jonesboro said, oh, no, 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 these CORE people may be nonviolent, but we're not. And we're not going to let them get killed by these Klansmen. So they used to because when the Klan used to drive through uh, black communities uh, 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 and firing at the air or shooting out windows or something, then the then the deacons began to sit on the French porches of at least of the homes that housed core workers. Because remember, in these rural communities, there are no hotels, so you always are staying with somebody own family or something. And and, uh, then the deacons uh, really compress a a long and complicated history. Uh, 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 The deacons started to show up when core workers brought people down to register to vote. Uh, And then the deacons showed up. At one point, uh, this teacher was was, uh, fired. I'm sorry, yeah, the t- this teacher was fired from school for supporting the movement. And then the students walked out of the school in protest. Uh, and then the Klan showed up uh, and the police showed up to threaten the students. And then the deacons showed up and, and they pulled up in a couple of cars and, and got out of the car. All of them had their rifles and they looked at at these clans people and policemen and said and said to their people, uh, men ready your weapons <laughs> and and the uh, clans people left and the policemen because the policeman had the police chief had called up the 
fire department to to bring fire hoses to to hose the students Birmingham style. Uh, and then uh, when when the deacons uh, uh, ordered when the deacon leader uh, I, I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on his name now ordered his men to ready their weapons. The chief ordered the fire department to roll up the fire hoses and leave. <laughs> and so Jonesboro is important in that way. It, it, it is the birthplace, for lack of a better word, of the Deacons for Defense and Justice, who later went on down to over to uh, Bogalusa, Louisiana, where they achieved a considerable amount of prominence. Jonesboro has vanished from the historiography, but that's the birthplace mm. of, of the deacons for defense and justice. Richard, let me uh, uh, hold, hold your point. I'm going to go to a couple of these calls, then we'll come back to you. Uh, let's go to 647 in Toronto, 647. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I wanted to say that uh, my uncle, Teola Calls, was a uh, the leader, one of the leaders in Jonesboro, Louisiana. Uh-huh. Yeah, Ciola Qualls, there's a street named after him mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, also, I wanted you to talk about uh, the impact that, that, that Africa had, or the, 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 the fact that Fannie Lou Hamer uh, was, was given a trip to go to Africa and I think it was Harry Belafonte arranged that trip, and she met Ahmed Sekoutere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, was, was all about uh, black people in the United States, but she also uh, was, was for oppressed people, period, especially those on the African continent. I wanted, wanted to know if you could elaborate on that. Okay, the trip that Harry organized was a trip for SNCC people to Africa, specifically to Guinea. And Fannie Lou Hamer was among those people from SNCC who went on that trip. Harris' thinking was, and I, and I think that's uh, important, remember this comes after the uh, Voting Rights Act has passed and after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 has passed and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party has not been successful in getting seated in in uh, in uh, at Atlantic City at the Democratic Party's National Committee. Harry's thinking was, and I think it was the thinking of a lot of SNCC people, but Harry's thinking was that we need to make our way to new ideas of struggle. And Africa, remember, in the '60s was just emerging as a continent of of independent nations. Guinea, Ghana, Tanzania, Kenya. I mean, I forget how, I think, and and don't hold me to this number, there's some 20 African nations emerge throughout the shackles of colonialism, if you will, uh, in the 1960s. And so Harry thought it was important to have a dialogue with these New the leaders of these newly emerging nations, and Guinea stood out as as someone who who really rejected French neo-colonial attempts 
at Wool. And he had links with Guinea. So that's how SNCC made its way to Guinea. SNCC itself had always been interested in Africa. Some of that was the fact that a lot of SNCC was still rooted on historically black colleges and universities, and those universities had a lot of African students who were interested. And a lot of those African students, such as those from South Africa, Zimbabwe, uh, and the like, uh, were still struggling for freedom. So there was a dialogue already on particularly, and it's something that hasn't been written about very much. Uh, but the dialogue excuse, is so Excuse me, but uh, could, could you, I, I just, I don't want to cut you, but uh, Odingo Odingo came to, came down south, and he had a, a big impact. Odingo Odingo of Kenya had a big impact on SNCC people, I, I understand. Is that correct? Well, Odingo Odingo was then uh, vice president, I forget the structure, but Kenya was emerging, newly emerging. Odingo Odingo was actually on a State Department tour, and he came to Atlanta, and he was staying in this hotel. So we, I was there, so I remember this, so we, we decided to go visit him. From my point of view, and and this is historically inaccurate, from our point of view, this Mau Mau was on tour, and he was going to be at this hotel that we really hadn't known that black people could go to. Um, so we went to visit, and he actually welcomed us up into his suite, and we spent about an hour or so talking about our movement and learning from him about the movement for freedom in uh, Kenya. And after we finished, we went back downstairs. And in those days, there was a door. If you were in the lobby, there was also a door. The one door led outside, but there was another door that led into a coffee shop and and fast food kind of place. So we decided to go in there to talk about what we had learned and heard from Oginga Odinga. And uh, uh, and were refused service, and we refused to leave, so we all got arrested. <laughs> and this <laughs> for doing this after our meeting with Ogenga, and there's a song Ogenga uh, 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 Odinga that exists in SNCC. You can find it online. It's called Ogingo Odinga. Was it, Sox- was it uh, Bernice Regan? Uh, did she write that? Bernice Regan, was that? They do that. No, the, Bernice didn't write that song. It was written by uh, Matthew uh, Jones uh, uh, oh, okay. uh, uh, out of uh, Chattanooga. He was from Chattanooga, Tennessee. He and his brother were singers in SNCC. Um, so in that sense, you know, the Ogingo Odinga <laughs> Uh, I had occasion as a reporter to be interviewing Okingo Odinga's son, and I told him this story. He just thought it was hilarious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but Africa itself existed right from the start of SNCC. Uh, if you read the first statement by SNCC, this is when Marion Barry was chair of SNCC. Uh, the part part of that statement is a denouncing of apartheid in South Africa. If you look at SNCC's slogan, 
one man, one vote. That was a slogan that came from Zambia in their struggle for freedom and, and right. So there's always been inside SNCC, or there always was inside SNCC, a recognition that there was similarity, not exactness, but a similarity in the struggles that were unfolding in Africa and our struggle hmm. uh, in the South. So, and Odinga Odinga is the one song that exists that crystallizes this relationship. All right. Uh, last thing, uh, the uh, president of Zambia, Kenneth Kuunda, mm-hmm. he did a lot of, uh, uh, brought a lot of people to, to, to it was a frontline state. Yeah. relationship with a lot of people from uh, people from the diaspora. Would you talk about that? And I'm going to hang up. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't just say can, there was a whole set of African leaders. Kenneth Kaunda uh, of Zambia, Julius Nyerere of uh, Tanzania, Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, Sekoture of Guinea. Uh, uh, that always were interested and supportive of the struggle that was unfolding uh, in the United States, <laughs> in the in the South, and they and they had various ways of expressing uh, support for that struggle, including giving sanctuary. Later on, uh, 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 members of the Black Panther Party who were wanted in the United States found refuge in Tanzania and Algeria. So it's a whole it's a whole story that we don't have nearly enough time to go into here. And of course in reverse in reverse, I mean some of the writings that were in English, such as um, um, Julius Nyerere, president of Tanzania's book, uh, Education for Self-Reliance, uh, uh, were very influential in black activists' uh, community. And of course, Franz Fanon's work, The Wretched of the Earth, had a tremendous influence, uh, which is a, a book essentially about the Algerian struggle, uh, had a tremendous influence. This is the last thing, definitely. Didn't uh, Ben Bella and people like that used to work for uh, Charles P. Howard was a great journalist. He did a lot of work around the United Nations, but I uh-huh. I think Ben Bella might have written a column at one time for Muhammad Speaks. During that he period, could very well have done that. I don't know. I'm he pretty sure well he did. That. Yeah. And that was because of uh, Richard Durham, the guy from uh, the great journalist yeah. from yeah. Richard Durham. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a lot in the 60s. There was a lot of interaction between Africa and African leaders and the movement for freedom in the South. All right. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you for your contribution. Let's go to uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, are you there? Hello. Yes. Yes, good evening. Uh, Thank you all. And... um, um, you know, thank you for this work, uh, Professor Cobb. Um, you know, I did, um, along with a book reading group, did read this book, and I appreciate um, all the history 
that you put in this book, especially the stuff that is uh, rarely known. Um, a lot of the heroes like um, E.W. Steptoe, C.O. Chin, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, and, and their stories, right? And I and I know, like, I think towards the end of the book, you were kind of saying that, like, how some people's stories aren't being told because, um, I guess, I don't want to say gatekept, but people aren't, um, you know, uh, seeing it as 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 the substance that it is, you know, or, or, mm-hmm. or whatnot. And, um, but I, you know, with you being there and living through it, um, and I appreciate you for, for bringing these stories out. Cause we, I don't think, I mean, I know I wouldn't have known, known about these gentlemen and, and, and these women also, um, that are in the story with, you know, without you putting it down and, and actually living and meeting these, these people. Um, and and at the same time that I was reading the book, this non-violent stuff uh, get you killed. I was also reading uh, Spies of Mississippi, and you made um, a lot of references about the Citizens Council, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the White Citizens Council. And um, in, in the Spies of Mississippi, they were talking about the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I'm not sh- and I'm not sure, like. Um, if we all really appreciate this, what what you all had to really fight against um, down there, in in especially in 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 the South, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, um, in the in the network that you all were working against, because you had the citizens council, which were in the small towns, and then the the Mississippi State. Uh, sovereignty commission, which was the state, I guess, ran effort to get the information from the citizens council, if I'm correct, and 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 actually have data license plates and and actually going to people's uh, farms, interviewing their families, getting all this information on them. So um, that's one question. I, I or you know, I want to see if you could shed more light on that. And and also if um, if you could tell us something about Mound Bayou, Mississippi, at that mm-hmm. time too, because it's uh, it's also kind of like an unknown gem amongst us, being that it is a town you know founded by former slaves, actually built, and uh, was an all black town, and and was a town that that um, Emmett Till's mother, Mam- Mammy Till, uh, was able to find refuge in while she was going through the trial. So if you could tell us a little something about Mound Bayou at that time, if you could, if if you, I, I mean, I know you're familiar with it, but, yes. and, and the, um, and the um, Citizens Council and Mississippi State Solitary Commission. I rest my mind. Okay. On the Citizens Council. I mean, the Citizens Council was formed after the 1954 Supreme Court decision uh, ordering the desegregation of schools than it was to assert white supremacy, uh, and uh, and it didn't want to do it, and and it didn't want to do it in the manner of the Ku Klux Klan. The Citizens Council was sort of businessmen and middle class folk, and, but they they wanted to assert white uh, supremacy, and and they had the levers of power. 
because they control the economic mechanisms, for instance. And so, for instance, it was the Citizens Council that uh, uh, if a group of people uh, uh, filed to desegregate a school, would have their names published in the local newspaper, enabling, once their names were out there, the Ku Klux Klan to intimidate them. So there was, it was a relationship between the citizens' councils and the Ku Klux Klan, though, though there was no exact organizational ties uh, between the two. But they all were operating in the interests of uh, white supremacy, and they were private groups. The Sovereignty Commission, on the other hand, was like the CIA. It was the government agency. And what they did was cultivate spies in the black community. They uh, collected information on people who were activists, sympathetic to civil rights, and they didn't limit that to just black people. It was It was just anybody, whether black or white. That's what the Sovereignty Commission uh, and a lot of their information was often in there. You could actually go to the uh, Mississippi State Archives, which are housed, I think, now in the Mississippi Historical Museum in Jackson and actually read the files of the Sovereignty Commission. Uh, but they were a spy agency, essentially. And uh, they, and obviously, uh, the information they collected uh, was used by the state to uh, try and intimidate people. But uh, more importantly, it was to alert local authorities to known civil rights activists and the like that might be in their towns or small cities. I mean, that's sort of briefly... The three groups. It's it's important to understand. You have the Sovereignty Commission and um, the Citizens Council. Whites. It was actually the Citizens Council, but it, the white is often added to it, and uh, the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, sir. And um, Mount Bayou is Mount Bayou. I'm sorry, I forgot yeah. to to actually. You know, you know, after the Civil Wars, obviously, uh, black people uh, wanted their own land and their own structures. And Mount Bayou was one of those. There were more than that uh, in Mississippi and in the South. Mount Bayou is just the last remaining of those. My great great grandfather helped found a community in Mississippi called New Africa. Yes, another uh, time. And I think uh, uh, Mumbai for us uh, was kind, kind of a, a sanctuary. I mean, imagine. I mean, if you're up against, you're in Mississippi and you're struggling against these white supremacists, the Klan, and you know there are groups that consider the Klan too liberal, uh, and uh, and the like. Mobile is kind of a sanctuary. You could go there and it's a black town. And you're not going to get hassled at any level. You know, so you could have a beer and you could dance and you could do lots of stuff. Uh, 
uh, because it wasn't. So it's a sanctuary town, really, that grew up after the Civil War. Uh, but I, I just want to stress, there were other towns and communities like this. So Mumbai was just a surviving, a survivor of this. Okay, thank you. Thank you, um, Professor. And uh, that, those are the only questions I ha have right now. That, that is a book that really has to be read and kind of reread in order to kind of absorb all of the information and all the good history. And it, it's, an, it's, it's, an, it's an empowering book as well, uh, not just an informative one, but it's an empowering one. And I appreciate Well, I appreciate that. those comments. Thank you. Hey, brother. Thanks for your contribution, man. Thank you. Professor Cobb, uh, you know, the caller, yes. raised, he, he raised uh, Spies of Mississippi. And, and, you know, it comes out later on uh, that the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission was paying uh, mm -hmm. blacks to spy on other black people. Uh, yeah. As an organizer at that time, you may or may not have been aware of, of exactly what was going on. But we were it, aware. Okay, I'm just curious. Just you know, just in um, looking back, was it any type of safeguards or protections that uh, the no, group? You, you, you really couldn't do that. Okay, you, could, you couldn't. Okay. I mean, unless you're going to have some kind of spy hunt in the black community, which which really we just weren't prepared to do. Okay, there's not much you can do. Just in try. Any just case, try to we work. We didn't feel we were doing anything wrong. And just try to work around them, I guess, huh? Yeah, well, we didn't even worry about them. I mean, okay. you know, we knew that we were conscious that, yes, there were spies. And people from time to time told us, you know, so-and-so is spying, you know. But it, it, it wasn't a big issue on our agenda. You know, before I pass it back to Brother Richard, he mentioned something earlier when you were talking to him. And he mentioned about you going into the towns and meeting community organizers uh just as i want to ask you a question and maybe you can help myself and the listening audience is there a difference between a community organizer i mean an organizer and a community leader no it's, it's the same or at least we didn't make we didn't make such a distinction i mean we saw ourselves as organizers by definition we were community organizers uh, and we were going in to, to try and help the community empower itself um, in in these little towns and communities. We saw ourselves as organizers, as distinct from protesters. So, so the strategy at that time was to go into the towns to to, to try to find out or discover the community leader. And then try to assist them. Or Sometimes it varied. Sometimes we knew. Okay. Because Miss Baker had told us in such and such a town, look up so and so. Sometimes, uh, for an, I'll give you an example how such a thing can work. Uh, a friend of mine and I, Ivan Donaldson, got run out of uh, a little town in the Delta, Rolling Fork, Mississippi, hometown of Muddy Waters, um, and run out at gunpoint. And we sped down the road 
and because this white man had said, you got two minutes to get out of town, niggas. Um, we sped down the road and we saw a black woman and it turned out she had a phone and whatnot. And we were calling on the phone, the people in the headquarters to say we've been run out of this town in Sharkey County, Rolling Fork. And, um, we, you know, uh, what we were still alive and still working in the Delta. And she heard uh, this woman, Yanita Blackwell, who would later become the, the mayor of this little tiny town, uh, what we were saying. And she stopped us and she said, you may not want to talk on the phone here because it's a party line. And I don't know whether people today know what a party line is. It means everybody in the town is on the line, so anybody can pick up the phone and hear the conversation that's going on. And she took us. She says, you need to meet Mr. Sias. And we had never heard of Mr. Sias. But Mr. Sias, who was a small farmer, turned out to be the head of the NAACP in the county, which was kind of an underground organization. So she brought us to see Mr. Sias, who was, as it turned out, was the real leader of the county. Black man was the real leader of the black. And this the county is 80% black on the Mississippi River. And uh, you sort of made your way to leaders in a variety of ways. That was the way we made our way to Mr. Sias, who became active with us. And Unita emerges as the real, as a, one of the major leaders of uh, Issaquina County, and um, uh, was became a field secretary herself. She was one of our older field secretaries of uh, SNCC. On the other hand, we made our way to Amsley because Miss Baker introduced us to Amsley. Amsley, though, was the one who introduced us to E.W. Steptoe down in uh, uh, Amit County. But when Amsley brought us to Ruleville in the Delta, he brought us, the first place he brought us to was a church, Mount Galilee Missionary Baptist Church on a Sunday. And he stood us up in the church and he said, I brought some freedom riders here. Now, neither McLaurin nor myself nor Landy were freedom riders at all. <laughs> <laughs> and you thought about being on the freedom. But Amsey said, I brought some freedom riders to you, and they're going to be staying here trying to get you all to register the vote. So that's another one. And he handed us over to an elderly couple, Joe and Rebecca McDonald, who were prepared to allow us to stay with them in their house in, in Ruleville. Uh, so it varies from place to place. The, the, to the extent that there's a strategy, is the strategy is you need to figure out how to meaningfully and effectively meet people who can guide you into the community. Um, and... We try, you know, almost anything worked. Okay. I mean, we were we were very successful at doing this. Uh, I think because people wanted change, they were happy 
that we were there. They may not go down to the county courthouse with us to register to vote because that's risky. Okay. But uh, they were good. They did other things uh, for There was a lady uh, uh, down the road from where we were staying in Ruleville, Mrs. Anderson, and she had a little uh, what we would call a convenience store, but it was a lot smaller than that. And if we were walking down that road on a hot summer day and Miss Anderson saw us, she was an elderly woman, she would wave us over and say, it's hot out here. Why don't you boys sit down right here? She had a bench underneath a pecan tree. And she would go into her little store and get us something cold to drink. And Miss Anderson, though, was a gossip or something. She had a whole network. Anyway, she would say things like, Charlie, those white people were talking about you, Charlie. I get you back to Washington, D.C. And, and she knew all this kind of stuff. I don't know how she did it. I never <laughs> asked her how she did it, knew all this stuff. But she knew all, and she would tell us, you need to be careful now because they're trying to figure out how to get you. They were trying to figure that out last night. And uh, so I don't know how she did that, but that was her contribution to the movement because she never went down to register to vote. Okay. <laughs> you know, and and so, you know, you could make your way into these. People took a long time sometimes to judge. I mean, people are used to judging the weather and the crops and all of this. So they're going to approach you the same way. They're going to take their time, just the way they do with the weather and the crops and the like, determining whether or not, you know, you can be trusted. And you just have to be patient with that. It's not an inquisition. Some of it is just curiosity. I remember this one old lady asked me if I knew the president because I was from Washington, D.C. <laughs> I said, no, ma'am. <laughs> Never met him. <laughs> and, uh, but so people judge you, and they take their time, just the way they take their time with everything in their life. But they know when you're in danger and when you're not in danger. Okay. They know when you're putting them in danger. And, and they take a measure of you. And uh, before they're going to really fully embrace you. I call it the, the who are your people attitude, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, who are your people? Tell me about them. Ms. Baker was like that, too. <laughs> Let me go to uh, uh, Tom. Uh, we've still got a few minutes. We can keep you, uh, Professor Cobb. Let's go to 646. 646? Yes. Good evening to you, guests. And um, to you, Elliot and Richie, my question for your for your guests is: with all that you've seen and all that you've done, and all of the parts of this movement that you've been a part of, where do you see black people today, and what is our future? Well, I can't say what the future is, but. <laughs> You know, black people are still struggling. You know, they're, they're, they're struggling. That's what they, That's how I see black people. And now that they're struggling against this tremendous back backlash against the gains that they made 
uh, a decade ago, in the in the fifties, the sixties, the seventies. Black people made gains. Didn't solve all the problems, but they made gains. Now we have a whole set of powerful people trying to strip those gains uh, that black people make. I think black people will all, as long as there are black people in the United States, you ask where they're going, they will always struggle. That's what I think. Uh, and I'm encouraged by the fact that there's a whole generation of young black people, millennials, and uh, who accept that they need to struggle. I'm, I, you know, I'm a fan of Black Lives Matter, Dream Defenders, BYP 100, Asylum's Daughter, and 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 the like. I'm a fan of them because they recognize, and, and they're half my age. Uh, but what, what would you? But what would you say is the, is the end game? Nobody wants to struggle for the rest of their life. Nobody wants their people to struggle for the rest of their life. But we don't the have any choice. Becomes, what is the end game? What, what we don't have any. We don't have any. We don't. We don't have any choice but to struggle. You're right. Uh, I'm 80 years old. And I came to Mississippi as a 19-year-old, and I'm still involved with movement struggle. That's what it takes. Now, a lot of people are not going to want to do that, but it's still necessary. Can't change the fact, you know, uh, the necessity. You can't change the necessity. Uh, uh, the end game. I could say something general like freedom. But, you know, if I had a lot of time, I could specify a whole long list of people. I don't think my son should be at risk at young, as young people because they're black from police. I do think that schools should actually educate people, particularly black schools. But I don't think much of the whole American educational system. I do think that there should be economic opportunity without regard to race or sex or gender. I do, I mean, there's a whole long list of things that remain to be done that weren't solved in the 1960s. Uh, the end game? Well, then it's freedom and opportunity for all. But that's a general thing. But when, but when you say... But when you say all, does that mean other ethnic groups that are... Yes, of course it does. Of course it does. So, right now, right now, in the Florida legislation, Florida legislature, there is legislation that DeSantis, the governor, is prepared to sign that would enable the state to take transgender children away from their parents. I don't uh, care that's about not that. racial. That's not, that's not racial. That's not racial. It's it's you know, one of the striking things about the a lot of the movements today is that they're integrated movements. Uh, I say for all. Yes. What black people gain, all people gain. That's, that's not true. Yes it is. No, no, you know why it's not true, sir? And this is the mistake that we that we made. You were just talking about Florida, right? 
I don't know. Uh, do you live in Florida? Yes, I do. Okay. Did you hear about how the governor is now making it to where as Chinese can no longer buy property in Florida? Did right. you hear about that? Yes, of course. Okay. I did. Now, now, now let's think about this. They're going. He's going after attack of all people of color, right? And here it is, it separates itself in the process of the brutality of it. So here it is, we as black people who are, in a sense, the so-called architects of the civil rights movement and the civil rights movement moving forward, and all other ethnic groups who were so-called a part of it, have benefited from it, even though they say some form of attack, but have benefited from it, collectively came together to build institutions with the backing. Now, this is the thing we never really discussed. The backing of their motherland, which would be their country, China, India, blah, 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 blah. But we as African people have no connection on the motherland, on the level to whereas we could have the type of support, so whereby, and I'll finish with this, whereby Governor Santos says to Chinese people, you can no longer buy property in Florida. And if the Chinese government decides, oh, we're going to bang this guy now. They have the strength and the power to bang Florida on a level that the American government won't even be honest with the American people. Where's where's our power position to bang these enemies like the Santas and the rest of them? Firstly, I think the Chinese government has said nothing about this. Two, I think governments don't care that much about their citizens in other countries, whether they're African or Chinese. I think uh, true, uh, I think so. I, I don't see any examples of it in the United true. States. Well, look, look, I do not see not any true. examples of it. I'll tell you why it's not true. It's not true because you have not seen. Now think about this, because you are elder and you are older than me, and you've seen more than I have. You do not see the brutality of other nationalities like Indians, Chinese. Germans, the ma- in the manner in which you see done to black people, they're not killing. They're not killing Indians. They're not yes, killing they Chinese. Are. They're not doing it on the level that they're doing it against us because they know that their governments will address it and deal with it and that they're in the position to do economic harm to America. And, and this is just my prediction. The I don't, Chinese will address that matter. I just don't think you're right on that. That's okay. Well, I don't think you're right on that. I think I think you're right. You haven't seen uh, 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 the kind of oppression directed at Chinese or Japanese or whatever uh, that you see directed against black people. I think that has nothing to do with the governments uh, that that they come from. 
I think uh, uh, I just don't think that. I think uh, that you have to uh, oppression against black people has to do with a tremendous fear of black people that has existed in this country for the last 400 years. I think Africa is not a government. It's 53 governments. Uh, and I don't think most of these governments care that much in the sense of policy what happens to African Americans. And I have a deep involvement with Africa. I lived there for some years. Uh, uh, so I think I understand what you're saying. I just don't think that that India or China or whoever holds what the United States does to Indians or Chinese here in check. I just don't think that, and I don't see that. I just don't see that. I think, uh, I think, uh, no. What DeSantis is doing with respect to Chinese ownership will not have, will not result in much directed at DeSantis or Florida or the United States from the Chinese government. I just don't see that happening. Could be wrong, of course, but I don't see it at this point. Thanks for your and there's nothing in the Thank history of the United States that suggests that that will be uh, the case. Thanks for your contribution. Well, thank you for your struggle, and I, I appreciate all that you've done, and it's it's fascinating listening to you. Thanks thank you. you. Thanks for thank your you very much. Peace. Richard? Yes, yes. I, I'm, I'm a, you know, um, Dr. Cobbs, for me, in reading your, reading your book, and uh, I pulled out, um, I'm, I'm exaggerating, um, thousands of questions, not necessarily because of the book, but because of your intergenerational, this intergenerational communication that you spoke about earlier that, yes. that happened. Um, and, and where you said is on both sides where people are listening to people, right? That's a mm-hmm. part of the organizing process and particularly mm-hmm. young people, right? Um, yes. You know, this generational thing. So um, getting your, um, you know, your perspective now as we went through this text. And again, I want to thank um, 1865 Freedman's Drive for, you know, at least I had the book, but I, you know, it was sitting on the shelf, but because <laughs> we're in a collective manner, um, not only was it that we were reading it together, but we were um, bringing out our different perspectives and point of views. And I yeah. think that that's healthy and a part of creating that long-term strategy. So I, agree I, with you. I respect that. I respect that. And I just wanted to, you know, thank you for that. Thank you. I agree with you. Mr. Cobb, before we leave, wait a minute. Uh, we get ready to go, but the, the, a call popped on. Let's take it. 773 uh, No, maybe they, they're not here. Hello? Uh, I hear a hello. <laughs> seven, okay, maybe they, maybe they can call back. Um, Dr. Cobb, listen, I want to thank yeah. you for, for sharing with us. You know, you raised some things when you was talking to Richard uh, that we might have to bring you back on 
sooner than you think <laughs> to talk about this because you, you I'm willing to when, talk about it. You know, you, I've heard it before. You when, know, when you, I just I think that's a very romantic notion about what countries. Oh no 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 no! Do. I'm not talking about that. When you talked about uh, um, the things that y'all were fighting against at that time, and you talked uh, about the black establishment that has a vested interest oh, in yeah. keeping status quo, is a little different yeah. now for for yeah. activists struggling. That's something yes. that that uh, that's a critical issue. Yes. I mean that really is a critical issue. Exactly, and it's much more difficult for them today than it was for us yesterday. You know, the, the, that's something I want to kind of travel down that path the next time we bring you on because uh, that's a fight that's right before us. We we, we yes. kind of we touch on that a lot on this program, and mm-hmm. maybe some people see the urgency of it and others don't. But uh, this is real. That struggle yes, is real, and I'm quite sure Richard agrees. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I agree. I agree. It's 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 the hardest issue that the this current group of activists between 25 and 35 have to confront, I think. Wow. Oh, yeah. In, in the sense of building organized struggle. Dr. Cobb, thanks for spending some time with us. Happy to do so. Stay well. Okay, thank you. And peace. I want to get to 80. I just want to let you know. I want to get to 80. So... <laughs> <laughs> I want to get through 80. <laughs> I want to see 81. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Okay. You have a good night now. All right. Good evening. Peace. Okay. Richard. Yes. It was an interesting conversation, man. Um, and looking back at his work and, and legacy, and the legacy continues. You know, the, the giving back and listening to young activists and hearing what they're saying, giving his opinions, you know, a lot of our people's opinions differ. Uh, you know, he mentioned about some things and deal with transgender. You, you, I mean, you know, I'm I, that's not my focus. My focus is dealing with our people and what they're doing. And, and I'm, you know, and the struggle that we face as a group. Uh somebody's sexual preference and all what they're doing that, that that has nothing to do with the abuse that we have suffered as a group since we've been here mm-hmm. uh, so you know that that you know that i'm 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 strictly dealing with his struggle for our people as a collective his work down there in mississippi for years even in, in uh, when he was involved in snick after he became a journalist traveling to the continent helping to put put together allafrica.com with those stories from all over the continent with journal. And, and that's, you know what, uh, that's one thing I want to mention to him, but I'll, I'll do it in private conversation about getting said, you know, a lot of those stories. I don't know whether you check out the site, uh, sometimes Richard. Yeah. The, I know now and then, but it's not a part of my, um, what you're going to where I go, but yeah, I will. Yeah. A lot of the on. stories on there and a lot of the journalists are very interesting in their perspectives on things. So, um, yeah, hopefully down the pipeline we'll have several of them on to kind of share things because it's just like he said the, the, uh, what's going on with our people whether it's here whether it's in the islands whether it's on the continent it's mutual it's it, we're suffering from the same things we might think it's different but it's not the only thing different is the location 
one one thing that that struck me that he put in there, and this is what um, Bob Moses has said, and I'm interested in, you know, as he was saying, the organizers, those who take on that vocation um, lifestyle, um, where um, and, and what was done in that period, you know, by Snick and him and Snick and others. Um, when, as an organizer, he said, yeah, the organizers need to fit into the local culture. And you was talking about those individual, the natural leaders. You you have to fit in as an organizer. Um, and I don't, I don't think that that's untrue today. Um, I mean, they have these virtual things, but that's not fitting in the culture, as he was saying, and, and, and people embracing you from an organizing perspective. And you coming with a campaign a issue, that they identify with and the things that they would do. And he also says organizing this way, literally and figuratively required putting one foot in front of the other, going from door to door and field to field. I mean, uh, you know, when, when he mentions and you were saying for him to come back, unless in my, you know, uh, uninformed opinion, unless we can, for whatever the issue is in this time, unless we can be able, those who become, and he said he was kidnapped, but there were already people there um, <laughs> working on that issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing it. But unless we can become, you know, willing to do that, and that's no, that is how these other people that are black, who are, yeah, as he said, expansive, how they get away. Because we don't have on the ground enough people who are in the culture of the people on the ground and who are doing that um, foot um, and, you know, um, that door to door um, field to field kind of organized. And the amount of people who are doing it are very few, Um, you know, um, you know, so that, that, you know, that, that, that's, it's, that's critical. um, And it may seem, you know, archaic, but I can't see any other way to win the hearts and minds of people against this, this group. And I ain't even dealing with the opposition. I'm just dealing with the internal opposition that he says expanded to deal with that group because they have all these levers, whether they are in the Democratic Party, whether they're in the Republican Party, whether they're in the universities, whether they're in the think tanks, they're utilizing all this access that they got from what those young men and women did for them to get in those positions and then they use those positions. What did he gave that example? Well, was that the NAACP or one of those where they didn't even invite the young people to speak? Mm-hmm. Like how, how, when we talk about disconnect, you know, it's just, I think that that's important to emphasize the organizing requirement in order to be able to truly be able to um, connect um, with quote unquote our people. You know, um, it's kind of funny you, uh, that you mentioned that, Richard. It reminds me of um, who do we have on that was talking about the um, it was the journalist for the Washington Examiner, Sam P.K. Collins. Mm-hmm. When you remember when they had the uh, the summit here and brought different leaders that was here, right? And the people that were doing a lot of the work, and I'm talking about the the. Uh, in the community, writing articles, doing a lot of the field work, wasn't invited to speak. He wasn't invited to speak. And he's been writing several articles on these things. Uh, Ezra Al-Haron, 
who's doing work over there at Delaware State and has been doing work for a while, wrote three books on black sovereignty. He wasn't invited to speak. You know, so these things, what he's talking about, Richard, is, is very real. And I'm glad that he said it as a veteran activist, saying that that is the biggest challenge that our people are facing now. But some folks, some of our folks don't realize it because this media is a powerful weapon. These Europeans know it. They're showing all these people on there. Uh, 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 I don't care who it is, Kamala Harris, any of these people. And if they got a black face and they use certain black media to push it, then you you waving flags and you don't even really know what you're doing. You don't know nothing about these people or what their objectives are unless you start digging because it really can't be hid. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree with him a thousand percent that the one of the biggest challenges, because we already know it's a challenge from the other side. That's historic. It's been here since we've been here for 400 years or longer. But this new challenge that he talked about, that's that's what uh, I agree with him, Richard. That's mm-hmm. where the fight's going to be. That's where I the agree. fight is. That's where the fight is. Not going to be. That's where it is. Richard, before we leave this evening, just want to give out the lineup on uh, Time for an Awakening. It's an abbreviated lineup, but uh, uh, it is what it is for right now. Uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, African Perspectives with Brother Oshi. That's 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays. On Thursday from 7 to 9, Mississippi on the move. The Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi, Brother Patrick Lumumba as host. Um, from seven to I mean, oh, excuse me, from Friday, from eight until a time for an awakening, and on Saturday from seven to nine, the elders of Sankofa with Dr. Janine James as host, and then Sunday, time for awakening is back from seven until you know. Before I uh, end, Richard, you heard him mention about Roland Four. I wanted to throw in, you know, what has happened down there, but I'm quite sure he's aware of it. But you know, the town was wiped out. And that's where Brother Patrick and I was down there. In fact, that's uh, that's my next move, Richard. And you know what it is. Right. As far as <laughs> Brother Patrick and them was kind of, you know, talking with him as a, as a veteran of that area. Although they're down there too, so uh, maybe they can kind of compare notes. Which is, always, which is always good to learn. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always, and we'll be back on Sunday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon Or you're watching your children playing after school Yeah, yeah, yeah.
Save the children. To save the children. 